go to homes and dungeons. Today, polyamory. What makes it so great? Why should we all love poly? And anyways, but now, sorry rather, uh, we have um, Sammy. Sammy, can you introduce yourself, please? Hello, um, I'm Sammy. <laughs> no one will ever know. Oh, wait, done. It's true. Uh, hello, I'm Sammy. Uh, I'm the GM of Queer Dungeoneers, an actual play podcast uh, where we use Dungeon World to tell an improvised story. Uh, we have an all LGBT cast. Um, we get into a lot of goofs, um, but there's also a lot of sincere moments. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting story, and we're all very happy with where it's gone uh, and where it's still going. Excellent. Um, I, I have been enjoying it. Um, I listened to the first uh, couple of episodes, and quite thankfully, in the second episode, as we were discussing before we had to restart everything, um, thanks to Skype, thank you, Microsoft, um, the recorder goes away. Yeah, so one of the characters does have a recorder, um, and I did make it my mission uh, to get it destroyed as soon as possible. Um, and I'm glad to say I, we pulled that off quite handily. Uh, and it really only got played once or twice um, before I banished it. <laughs> I, I and the rest of the public, I, th I think we can all be very thankful. Um, my mother-in-law once purchased a recorder for my older boy, as a birthday present, and I'm still trying to figure out what exactly I did to get to her that she would do that. I mean, why would Yeah, you... it is as much a punishment as a present, I think. Yeah, it's like, it's terrible. But anyways, um, we want to talk about roleplay games, TTRPGs, that kind of thing. Now, mm -hmm. Sammy, having listened to a little bit of Dungeon World, um, one thing I noticed, and I think I've heard about Dungeon World, is... It's a lot more improv friendly than than fifth ed Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, Dungeon World is a powered by the apocalypse game. Uh, so powered by the apocalypse is sort of a strand of role playing games uh, that are built around sort of having sort of play being a conversation between uh, like the game master and the players where they kind of build a story collaboratively. And that really opens the way to a lot of improv. Uh, and that's that's the way I like to play. Um, so Dungeon World suits what I like to do a lot. Uh, it means you can start with very little, um, but actually end up with a lot. Like going in, um, I actually had basically nothing, well, no, literally nothing prepared. Um, and I just got the party to tell me what they're about and what they wanted to do first. Um, and they actually gave me all the seeds that I made the first dungeon with. Uh, and then from that dungeon, we built out the first town. And then from that, we built out the first continent. Um, and so it was this real back and forth, but we've actually ended up with a lot of deep lore coming out of that. We have a whole like pantheon of gods and this unique way that gods work in our world we have multiple continents. We have this this concept of a flat world that has this other, like, uh, sort of dimension where the gods live outside of it and, and this sort of separation between them. And all of this has just come up organically through us going back and forth. There, there was no need for me to plan all of this ahead of time. It's just latching on to what we're interested in and expanding it. And I just think that that is so cool. That is very cool. I, I do like that. I mean, also, like, from a mental health perspective, to take a lot of the weight off the Dungeon Master is really, really lovely as well. Because, I mean, I think anyone listening to this will say, my God, I've had burnout as a Dungeon Master and I've just had to, like, go into someone else's game and just set fire to the nearest tavern as just not so much an act of cathartic revenge, just, guys, I need goofs now. <laughs> and I need someone else, not to hurt or suffer from them, but just to know that I can understand someone else's pain rather than try and remember the name of every single god to try and, you know, I mean, in direct contrast, if you've read through Curse of Strahd, and I don't recommend it, um, 
Curse of Strahd has an immense amount of maps. It starts with the game of tarot, which defines everything that's going to happen. But still, you've got all the side stuff that is probably going to happen, and it's massive. And even though it's lovely to run something written by someone else, because I my first massive campaign was a homebrew that I did. What a silly boy. Um, well, yeah, I did just about everything. And then to turn around and look at that body of work and go, my God, what was I thinking? So that that improv thing, I think, is actually really cool. I don't know if yeah, I can totally. do it. totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just totally reframes, I think, the role of the dungeon master. Because, I mean, I think that's exactly it. Like, the way what you're talking about, there's so much pressure on this one person in the game to make the game fun for everyone. But the the dungeon master or the game master is just a player too, right? They're just another player in a different role. And the fact that they... One feel like they're actually the leader of everyone else so they have this sort of control over everyone else and two that they feel the pressure of that leadership i mean that's not normally how we want to socially interact with our friends when we're all hanging out and having a good time you know we don't normally want to impose that sort of weird hierarchy and say one person is in charge of everyone else and (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh and is imposing their will on them oh, no. um this explains why i've lost a lot of friends oh, no. well i think a lot of people <laughs> do lose friends through um role-playing games which is so sad it is it's such a great opportunity uh to make friends i i agree it, it's kind of funny like reading through say the facebook group um for fifth ed it is impossible to go by like any two days where someone will say my God, I've got the worst dungeon master in the world. Or if even if you just go into Reddit and you try and find, okay, world's worst dungeon master, some of the stuff you read is terrible. And it's like, look, mm. all you had to do, dude, was just calm down. <laughs> just... Totally. And, and communicate is the other thing. Communication is great. Um, I mean, I think as part of communication is setting out, okay, and, and this is kind of coming back as well to like you know does the dungeon master run everything as you know the god emperor of that world and it's like well it's kind of better if you don't but with that communication i think comes a level of hey here's what i'm thinking is everyone okay with this does this sound like fun for everyone or does this not sound like fun and or how could we make it fun No, absolutely. I think that that sort of consent at the table to what you're playing, like in the sense of everyone being safe and comfortable, but also in the broader sense of just everyone feeling uh, sort of like their interest in the game is represented. I think that's so important. Um, Like I actually just had it today where I had to like message, I had an idea um, and I had to message one of my players ahead of our session tomorrow just being like hey would you be okay if like i started like hinting that your memory might not be completely accurate you know um stuff like that you know because i felt that was a really fun direction and i thought that that player would also agree but i didn't want to just drop it on them either you know i wanted them to have have veto rights on that and say no like what my character says they remember is what they remember and if that's what they'd said then cool as it was they said yeah hell yeah go for it that sounds awesome like and i think that that just you know takes a weight off and that's not the only time we've done stuff like that actually some of the most uh one our most intense episode uh was very much like a collaborative thing where i said look i want to bring these like intense themes into your like into the story in this bit for our characters like is that okay um, like, it's going to be a chance for your character to maybe redeem something that they've done, but it's also going to get quite grisly and might change the character quite a lot. Like, do you want to do that? And the players, once again, they jumped on it, but I think they only could jump on it because they were willing participants, right? It wouldn't have worked if I just turned up on the day and been like, oh, by the way, this thing is happening now. <laughs> I had yeah. to work with them. It, it, um, it, it is abnormally it is and wonderfully true about us. Like, I mean, us, when I say humans as a species, we're pretty cool with a lot of things, 
accept surprises. Hmm. And and to kind yeah, of definitely. paint a, a thing, and I and I might be you know outing myself as a terrible human being. I'll I'll try to be better. Um, if say you're on the way to the shops, and because you're going to meet someone there, and then they call and say, "Hey, let's not meet at the shops. Let's meet at this other place." But you're, say, like three steps from the shops and you've kind of planned out what you want to do and you've kind of planned out exactly the time and all the things. And then they suddenly say, hey, actually, let's meet somewhere else because I'm here now and I'm doing this thing. It's like, I, well, and part of your brain goes, well, actually, no, that's that's not too inconvenient. That's fine. That's that's cool. I, I can just reschedule what I'm doing. But the other part's like, but but I had it all planned out. And I, and I think yeah, that's exactly, exactly. like I could deal with going to the other place. That's fine. But now because I'm so heart set on getting that coffee and I'd already kind of like created that construct of the day. It's like, uh... and I think that's like another important issue is like, you're exactly right. It's like that situation. And I think sometimes people can be resistant to thinking of, like the interactions they have at a tabletop game as being the same as other interactions they might have in their life. Like they feel like, well, no, there's rules to this game and I have to follow those rules even if someone's not happy about it or I have to do this thing because that's what the story demands. And they don't, they treat it as this, this abstract entity that must be obeyed, not as just a, a social interaction, a, a conversation. So yeah, totally. <laughs> No, I can understand that. I mean, I, I, I do think at the end of the day, like the the wonderful kind of thing with what we do with tabletop roleplay games, and I agree with you. This is a very very social activity, mm-hmm. and we've both said, "Hey guys, this is great for making friends." And I'm I'm lucky in that the last two years that I've really gotten into it, I've made great friends. I've been very very lucky that I would say. 95% of all the interactions I've had have been very, very positive. Mm-hmm. There was one person, it, I wouldn't say it wasn't positive. Have you ever played with someone who's just too much of a power gamer? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. And that's fun for a little bit. And then for me, it kind of hits this point where it's like, Actually, no, no, now we're not having fun because there's no challenge left in this. There's no thrill. And that was probably my only kind of case where it's like, ah, I can feel the fun coming out of this. You've used rules to derail the fun stuff, the thrill, the enjoyment, the danger. Yeah. exactly and i mean it comes down to matching the right people to the right table i think um yeah i know uh so uh there's a sort of famous gm slash tabletop personality um adam kobol uh would have a lot to say on that and how you know not every game is for every person and like in the same way i love the improv style other people want a power game and actually that's totally fair but um, if you stick me at the table and them at the table, uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we need to be in the right spots. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, actually, I should ask, have you played any of Grant Howard's work? Uh, yes, I have played. Which one have I played? Did I play the bear? The... I've played bear the bear one. one and Honey Heist. <laughs> Honey Heist is great. I feel um, like I've played another one. Hang on. Is it Goat Crashes? <laughs> No, I'll, it'll come to me. I've played a lot, I've played quite a few of the one page RPGs, but not all. I'm trying to remember which one of them ones of them were his. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like I've I've said, look, you know, the improv thing is really not amazingly for me. But we played Goat Crashes once in one of the groups that I run, hmm. because unfortunately we had two people pull out of a night at like the last minute. And we're like, oh, you know what, guys? How about we play something else? And everyone's like, okay, Josh, what are you thinking? I said, anyone here played Go Crashes or Honey Heist? And they're like, 
No. Like, great, we're playing Go Crashers. Give me 10 minutes. And I don't have my notebook on me, but I quickly drew up like a, th- a two bedroom unit with like a bathroom, just so I had an idea of what kind of place it would be. Wrote down 12 names, wrote down 12 adjectives, you know, an adjective next to each name to define that character. I'm like, roll some dice. All right, we're ready. Go. And it was one of the best fun nights we've ever had. Exactly. It's very freeing. (laughs) Yeah, it it actually was. Like, it was, I mean, now I think of it, I mean, it was, it was great because suddenly it's like, I don't need to memorize or rely on 600 combined odd pages of, of several books to define how we play this game. And I don't think we should. Sometimes. It's interesting. Maybe. When we say, like, when when I talk about improv play as well, it doesn't have to be completely improvised. Um, it's it's Sometimes it's about reframing how you prepare the game. Um, so one example of that is, like, so in Dungeon World, uh, rather than, like, planning out exactly how an adventure is going to go, uh, you make something called a front. Mm-hmm. So a front is a threat to the world or to an area uh, that will basically... It has sort of a series of steps um, that the players will notice as the threat advances. Um, So it might be like... uh, The trees start standing up in their places and walking around, and then uh, horrible monsters come out of the woods, and then... Something like, I don't know, the Dark Forest Queen rises and destroys the city or something like that, right? Like like these mounting steps. Uh, and they're kind of the goals of what the, the antagonist in that situation or the threat wants to do. Um, but it's not, it's not that all of those things will actually happen. It's a roadmap of how it will unfold so that you actually then have a guideline for how the threat will respond to what the player does. So rather than trying to think out exactly what's going to happen in the game, you just try and work out the roadmap of what the threat wants to achieve and then try and like adapt it as the story adapts. Okay. So it's like, it's interesting. There's hybrid styles, I think. When, when we talk about improv, I don't think it doesn't have to be all you turn up with no notebook <laughs> and rattle something off yeah. all by yourself. You know, there's a way of doing it structured, I think, that's kind of a nice middle point between completely freeform play and uh, a 600-page rule book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's when the Dungeon Master turns up with three binders, you should really be concerned, like, oh, <laughs> oh dear. That, that being said, um, one of the Dungeon Master in a game where I actually get to play, the level of prep the man does is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever gone to someone's table and felt a bit intimidated and a bit like, how did you do this? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. I mean, for me, sometimes <gasps> I end up with that feeling of like too much. Is, I feel like then sometimes like I don't know where I fit into it. I guess that's what sometimes scares me off of that sort of thing is it's like, it's all there. <laughs> and where, where am I in it? You know, I'm, I'm more afraid to like give my character a, a meaningful place in the world because... I don't get to choose much about the world, so I have to know all this stuff, but maybe I don't have access to that information. But, I mean, for the people that enjoy it, I mean, for instance, I think Critical Role is is much... It's a very planned program on Matt Mercer's part, for instance, and that's hugely popular, and it's a very successful style and, and very, very loved by a lot of people. I will confess, um, I have not watched any Critical Role... I watched a little bit of one episode on YouTube, and when I saw, like, eight or nine player characters, I was like, this is not for me. It's seven. It's seven, seven. But, um, okay. I don't, I don't, I've watched a little bit. Um, I have a lot of respect for the show. I don't personally like it, as you could probably guess from my philosophy, but, um, my partner loves the show, you know, and, and it's exactly that. There's no knock against that style at all. I think it's just good to know other ways to do things because I think a lot of people, they fall into the trap of maybe 
starting games and then dropping them because they become too much work. And if you find yourself doing that over and over again, then maybe maybe the typical D&D play style isn't actually for you and it doesn't have to be. Um, the funny thing is um, that Dungeon Master has now joined one of the games I run, um, the, the Margrave campaign. Um, ah, okay. I have never felt so judged in my life than when he turned up and I'm like, I can't do this the way you do this. That, that being said, like for me, it was one of the most amazing things like to sit down at another dungeon master's table sometimes and to see the way they do stuff. Yeah. It's like, totally. It's, I mean, every different style you see is going to enhance your play. Right. And, and I can, can I ask as well, have you ever like had to bite your tongue when a dungeon master does something differently to you? And you're like, <laughs> no, it's not your table. Shut up. Uh, Again, yes. just me. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Oh, thank goodness. I, I think everyone has those moments. Give, give um, me one second. I'm just going to close the window behind me because that's... I don't know if this is coming through on the mic, is it? Uh, not for me, but I mean, it might come through on your full recording. <laughs> Let me have a look. Or once you level I'll, I'll, I'll just watch it because I don't think it does. I think this mic's actually quite... Oh, no. I think I can just hear it. And, and probably once you do all the boosting and stuff it might come through okay. so well, maybe if you want to people give me one unless you need it open while Josh walks over to the window hey listeners this is Sammy here uh, no one else is hearing this bit so there we go. Say everyone... oh Josh is back Josh I'm gonna stop back. now bye oh okay <laughs> well, everybody. that was uh... that was that I'm sad now <laughs> oh, okay wow I feel so much better but um, the the other funny thing is in this game that I play that I get to play in, everyone at that table is a dungeon master. Oh, cool! And in fact, at the game that I run with him, the Margrave one, everyone at that table is a dungeon master as well. And kind of the wonderful thing that we've all come to because of like we we met through his game because he did that thing on Twitter when he said, "Hey, does anyone in Australia want to play some D and D?" Which is a great yeah. way of getting a table very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah! Having to turn away 10 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so we started playing. And one of the cool things he does is um, is he doesn't say, let me check the book. He first says, does anyone know the rules on this? Hmm. And then we've been known to have like 10-minute conversations about the exact interpretation of the rule. Before someone would go, look, I'll just check Sage question and see if it's on there. Yeah. And that's actually been really great for us because it, it helped us suddenly. It was kind of like we were just having a discussion of like, okay, guys, do we all know how D&D works? <laughs> or how do we think it works? <laughs> does anyone really know how D&D works? I'm pretty sure Chris Perkins does. <laughs> Or maybe Mike Wasn't Williams. there a point in a t in time where a weapon attack was different to a melee attack or something like that? I I, rem I seem to remember something like that for a while. Like back in there's a lot of back in second in edition. In some ways, second edition was easier for a new player. Um, in some ways, someone out there is going to say yes, Josh, but Thacko, and they'll say yeah, I remember. Trust me, I. I love playing spreadsheet and roleplay game. Um, because a fighter had no access to magic and not really any special moves. They just got really good at hitting people with a sword. And then at level 10, you've got an army. Well, good good for you. The mage can kill you all with fireball. Ha. Um, but now it is really different because... And, and in fact, it's one of the things I like about D&D is that you may have a fighter, but you can have a fighter who is really good at magic. Or you can have a fighter who doubles down on being good at combat. Or you can have a fighter who's really good at stealth, otherwise known as a ranger. And I'm starting to like that flexibility a lot. But I also realise we tangented quite nicely. <laughs> That's alright. Yeah. Cool. So um, I, I should ask, 
we, we were talking, you, you mentioned something before, which I quite liked. Not every game is for every person, and not every table is necessarily going to work. Yeah. How do you make your table work? So I think setting the expectations um, at the start is a super important thing to do. Actually, this is something that I've kind of realized the importance of over time. Uh, I wish I'd done it better for Queer Dungeoneers. Um, We got away with it because we'd all played together. Um, but we still should have probably talked about it more, especially before getting into a podcast together. Um, and I think it's worked. It's worked very well for us. But even then, we should have had the session zero, had the conversation, really set what we wanted the tone to be. Um, I think that's it. And I think uh, the other important thing is just not... Like, giving people the space to just walk away from the table. Like if someone just doesn't gel with the game, that should be okay. And they should just be able to not be part of it anymore. I think sometimes that's seen as like an affront to the, either the GM or the other people in the game. But I think giving people that mobility to try out a game, but not necessarily have to commit to it and that being okay. I I think there's a lot of stigma around that, around that kind of thing around someone actually just being like, look, I don't enjoy this style of play and I'm going to go. Yeah, I think that that's actually a big thing that's missing. I know at a lot of um, tabletop events, they have just like an open table policy. You know, you can just, like if it's a one shot, you can just kind of get up and and leave if you need to or if you want to. And that's just got to be okay. And no one asks you like why. They might ask you if you're okay, but they're not going to try and interrogate you in that moment or anything because it's not really about that. Um, yeah, I think that that sort of thing, that might be, uh, unusual advice for some people, but I think that it's, I think it's important. I think I would agree. stripping away that, <laughs> that layer. No, I, I really would. Like, yeah. okay. My first table that I ran for a podcast was me shouting into the void to another bunch of podcasters. Hey, does anyone want to play D and D? And I got mm. stupidly lucky. Like, yeah. There is lucky, and then there is what I got, which is several levels along. Because I got wonderful individuals, and we didn't have a session zero. I didn't know what a session zero was. I didn't know how to set expectations. But for some odd reason, we were able to get... It was myself, my youngest brother, Ethan, um, a guy called Tyler. Sorry, Tyler, no joke this week. Um... Kevin and Crystal. Kevin, Crystal, and Tyler had never met me, had never met Ethan. Ethan I know pretty well, because, you know, related. Um, But it's five relative strangers who start as relative strangers and after like a year and a half are really good friends. Yeah. And that should not have worked. That's great. (laughs) I'm grateful it (laughs) did. Sometimes things just do work, I think. I guess the the lucky thing we had was um so the group who the sort of broader group that the queer engineers cast come from um all met at our university uh and we had a sort of a broader D&D game long before this uh that actually our player Jared was the DM of uh and that that game I think at its largest swelled up to 10 people um, but the thing is, there was actually just a lot of natural vetting from that, like people not coming back to play again um, and stuff like that. And so I guess by the time I went to do QD, we'd kind of had that session. We'd already done that session zero in that way and that the people who weren't going to gel in this group, you know, n- no fault of their own, all nice people. Um, they'd gone, you know, they, they'd gone on to other groups and to find other things that suited them better. Um, and so we just had sort of a core group that all got along. Um, and even then, I mean, the group was reduced down again because we had a group of, I think, seven, I want to say seven or eight. Um, but I got to reduce that down even more by being like, look, I'm only going to take on four players. And so I got the four people who were actually interested in being recorded (laughs) and put on the internet. (laughs) So, um... 
I guess in that way we, it was vetted, but uh, not. Still could have been better, I think. And it's important. It's super important. As we were discussing a bit before we pushed the record button for the second time because Skype decided to be funny. Um, we, we'll, we'll never hit perfect, but hopefully we can aim towards being a little bit better in one thing and then aim towards being a little bit better in another thing, like being slightly nicer to each other. Exactly. What, what and I think we only in? get there... <laughs> we only get there through reflection, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of, like, sort of things that are held as sort of sacred in D&D a lot of the times, uh, probably because it's such a big brand identity uh, and also, like, cultural identity for a lot of people uh, in in a sort of, like, a nerd culture way. And I think, I think it can be hard for people to break that down, and there are just so many assumptions laid in, in, in the way that people play that aren't all great <laughs> aren't all useful or helpful yeah I, i'd agree i mean i think sometimes the worst thing we can do is say i'm a fan of this mm. if by what you mean is this thing right or wrong it's like no no don't don't ever say this thing right or wrong yeah exactly say this thing right and wrong <laughs> dungeons and dragons is a useful system I wouldn't say the game mechanics are massively flawed because, you know, in some ways they're designed to be overpowered. So a hero can be an actual hero, and that's great. Cool. But there's stuff in there where it's like, guys, can, can we... Can we do that terrible thing and bring politics into a game that already has politics into it to just make ourselves all a bit more comfortable and happy because if we can acknowledge the elephant in the room we can either resolve it in a way where it's like hey this no longer has to be an elephant <laughs> or we can take ownership of the elephant and say look it is a problem and that's okay because we either yeah. solve the problem deal with the problem ignore the problem remove the problem from the room <laughs> or just play something else or just play it a different exactly. way. Yeah, exactly. Actually, one thing I kind of like is that in... Oh, God, was it... I think it was Volo's Guide? Um, or Morden Canaan's. One of the two books that they brought out. Hmm. Please forgive me. Falling asleep. Um... They made goblins and orcs and bugbears all playable races. Mm. And that's great. It is great. Uh, I, I find that interesting. Uh, the orcs have still, even in 5th edition, have a negative intelligence modifier, which is an interesting Did they? statement. Yeah, they do. Oh, they're the only, they're the only class with a negative modifier. Um from from the race <laughs> which is yeah. it's like guys let's the funny thing is i can remember a second edition where dwarves were plus one constitution and minus one charisma mm. someone's going to yell at me about that i'm really sorry it was a long time ago guys and i don't have my book on me right now so um but i can remember that and i can just remember thinking I'll never have a dwarf paladin. Yeah, exactly. That and dwarves I mean, are there's... not allowed to be paladins anyway. <laughs> there's actually a lot of um, discussion around that. There's sort of a lot of pretty problematic assumptions around the entire idea of your your physical attributes are inherently different because of your race, like in terms of your abilities. Mm. Uh, doesn't come from the best place, especially when you're talking about the big, brutal orcs having lower intelligence and stuff like that. Um, I know that it's a, it's a big discussion in, like, tabletop games more broadly, uh, in looking at, like, alternate systems to D&D, with people talking about how, like, okay, if you have wings, maybe you can fly. If you have a hard shell, like you're a turtle or something, maybe that gives you some sort of defense. So maybe, like, actual physical 
attributes can count, but maybe it's a little bit weird little... to tie in all this other stuff. Yeah. A little while ago, um, James Hake, um, he wrote an article on D&D Beyond that actually went into, okay, guys, how about we just ignore all of that and instead your stats are decided by your class or your background. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I like it. I mean, it does make a lot of sense. I imagine it probably needs a bit more balancing, maybe a little bit more tinkering. Um, because humans would in some ways kind of be stuffed around because they don't get dark vision and they don't get, you know, lucky and they don't get, you know, being able to breathe fire or they don't get really good crits. Um, so I imagine you could probably just, you know, say, look, pick a feet, have fun. Um, which makes sense to me, but I like the idea because I think dwarves should have bards and warlocks and sorcerers, but because they don't get any benefits to charisma and a lot of people want to run like optimal builds, uh, I am guilty of this, um, you don't see it, and that's not okay. Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not great. Uh, I've seen a lot of suggestions of like dividing um, sort of like race from culture. So, like for instance, uh, you know, you might say actually a human brought up in a dwarven culture would actually have like the attributes we'd associate with like dwarves, right? Like because those are cultural things. Like, if they were brought up in that culture, then they would have the cultural advantages of that um, rather than basing it on physical things, which is interesting. I mean, just because you're born a dwarf, if you were born a dwarf uh, 200 miles from the next dwarf, why would you know about dwarven masonry, <laughs> for instance? No, you know, it doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> it's kind of like... um. Sorry, you just put me in mind of Captain Carrot from the Discworld. Okay. You've not... Okay, cool. Look, dude... Sorry. Sammy, go read the Discworld. Okay, start with Guards Guards. Don't go the early Rincewind stuff. Ignore it. Even Pratchett himself said, yeah, they're not very good. Start with Guards Guards. It's great. But um, Captain Carrot is a human who when he was like a little baby, was found by dwarves. And so he was raised as a dwarf. Mm. And there's actually a bit in the book where the king of the dwarves, who was his adoptive dad, was saying to him, look, son, i, I got to let you know, you're not a dwarf. And Captain, and sorry, Carrot is like six feet tall. He's like, what do you mean I'm not a dwarf? And he's like, well... You're a human. He's like, that does explain a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you know, there's a bit more back and forth about, no, look, this is really how we found you. Here's the sword we found you with, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's kind of funny. Um, But it's exactly that. Like, he is, through the books, and Pratchett goes into a lot more opening this up. It's like, no, he is a dwarf. Because he follows the cultural norms. He speaks the language. He is accepted among dwarves as a dwarf, even though he's also a human. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. See, he would know about dwarven masonry. (laughs) Yeah, he he, he does. Actually, there's a lot of very, very terrible puns that Pratchett goes into about dwarves, and they're great. Actually, dwarves dwarves in his world are really interesting because... Dwarf courtship is, and he doesn't make a joke, but he he makes it an interesting thing. Dwarf courtship is all about very carefully finding out the gender of the person you're talking to. Because they're a society that believes in all male pronouns for everything. Oh, dear. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, um... It's interestingly problematic, but the way he unpacks it is like, no, 
we need to talk about this, everybody. Yeah. So. That's interesting. It's interesting to. There's a sci-fi series that does the, uh, that does the reverse of that, actually. Um, In that they actually have, there's this um, sort of group of space people that just have no conception of, of gender. Um, and so they just use she for everyone, but it doesn't mean anything feminine. It just literally, that's all they comprehend. And, and their gendered norms are just uh, of the cultures that they meet are just completely different anyway to what we have would expect. You, have you read the forever war? No. Okay. Um, it's a sci-fi book about these people who sign up to be soldiers, but the problem is because they travel through light speed to get to places no time passes for them. Mm. But when they get reinforcements, time has passed back on Earth. And so the main protagonist is this human fellow who starts off as like, okay, humans are pretty well like us now. You know, heteronormative is the norm. It's all like that. But it slowly becomes, okay... We're not heteronormative. Everyone's cool with everyone now. And it's like, wow, that's actually really enlightening. Thanks, guys. Well done. You, you solved that mess. <laughs> um, and then in order to, like, control the population, homosexuality becomes the norm because it's the best way to make sure people aren't breeding too much. And so the main character suddenly becomes the minority. Hmm. And then it becomes... No, we're all clones. And look, there's a way of reading into that to say, guys, look, that's problematic. But at the same time, it's an interesting, I guess, perception of, okay, you may be the main, you may be the norm one day, but the next day you're not. And that's okay. It just means we can talk. We can empathize. Maybe. Yeah. I think, Maybe. I feel like, we, we I mean, hope. fiction has such an important, especially fantasy and sci-fi have such an important role in, yeah, challenging the basic rules of our society um, and imagining worlds that aren't like our own and whether they're for better or for worse or for just completely different. <laughs> and hopefully not going to catch on fire in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. I brought the room down. I'm sorry. Let's bring it back up. That's um, actually, how did you get into roleplay games? Um, so my story's not so interesting, I guess. I disbelieve um, so, you. Sorry? I disbelieve you. I'm, I'm bet it, okay. I bet it's good. Uh, so we, so I started playing uh, in a D&D 5e game uh, just after high school. Um, nice. and we played that for a few months. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was exactly the example of maybe a group that didn't mesh. We had some people, we had a GM who really wanted to like do this military simulation. Uh, we had a bunch of players who didn't care. We had one power gamer and then we had me and my partner. Um, so it was just such a wild spread that. Uh, it didn't leave like, didn't leave me that excited about D and D as a whole. And then I didn't actually play again until I met up with the group uh, at my university that I was talking about before, um, where we where we played Dungeons and Dragons again. Um, and that was more interesting to me. Uh, I think we all had sort of more similar play styles, uh, but the group was too big. Um, and it was too hard for the GM to manage. Uh, so it sort of, it fell apart. We sort of stopped and started a few times. Uh, but what we ended up playing instead, um, was the game Masks, uh, which is another Powered by the Apocalypse game. Uh, and there were seven players, um, and one GM, obviously, uh, which was still a very big group. Um, but the GM, Scarlet. Um, she made it work uh, and sort of split us into groups a lot of the time to do different sections. Uh, and I think that that play style just put a lot less pressure on her as a GM because it was uh, not the most improvis- 
not the most improvisational way to play it, but definitely leaning heavily on what our characters would be interested in on any particular week or day um, to come up with sort of story beats. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, around the same time, I was also with another group, I'd actually started GMing. Uh, and that's actually what I found definitely the most interesting to me uh, was being a GM myself. Uh, I really liked sort of that. I don't know. I just, I really love it. I really love getting to tell a story while also being surprised when my story does something I didn't expect. I mean, even even when you try to play in an improvisational way, you still have things happen that you didn't expect. <laughs> like, yeah. there are things you didn't even realize you were assuming were going to happen. Can, can, um, I, can I just ask you, and, and yeah. this is something I think every GM has to admit, how how good does it feel when you do something, right? You set something up and it comes full circle and you're sitting there like with your I meant this all the time face on, but are they on the inside? You're like, yes! <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. That's definitely a good feeling. Um I, it, having said that, it's, it's still just as fun um, to have it happen a different way. I set up this situation where the players sort of played themselves into this real moral conundrum where they could either, like, save one of the characters' mothers or, like, save this dying child, basically. Um, that sounds very extreme, but it, it, was, it was kind of meant to be this... Uh, it was, it was sort of a moral choice, and it was just kind of the natural um, fallout of what had happened before that. Um, but I, there I was thinking, hey, here's this, like, very natural moment that's come up. Uh, and then one of the players just comes up with this solution uh, using this item that they found in the second session we ever played that was kind of turned into a joke... Uh, and they found this solution that actually could save the child, meaning that they could use the other thing to save the mother. And it was just the most, like, bizarre moment of, like, from a narrative level, it was kind of weird because, like, suddenly this really tense situation just became nothing because they didn't, there was no, there was no, um, there was no, like, tension at all anymore. Um, but from a player perspective, I mean, it was amazing. It they was hilarious must have and been cool. And... The, they must have been giving the <laughs> highest of fives. Yes, no, it was, it was, it was fascinating. It was so funny that it was even possible. Uh, and, and in the weirdest, weirdest way, um, I won't spoil that one. But yeah, no, I think that it can be very fun both ways. Mm. I mean, I have a lot of things that I think will surprise my players, that I think will start unfolding in the nearish future. I'm I'm perfectly um, okay spoiling one of mine. Um, it was yeah? <laughs> it was like the finale of like the campaign, like the first one we recorded, and several things came full circle. Um, one of one of their mentor characters needed to be was essentially dying of a magical disease, and they had to get him to the top of a tower. And so they put him in their bag of holding, which is the first thing they did with the bag of holding was decide who goes in the bag. So they thought that was great. They're like, oh, this is full circle. This is wonderful. I think I can tell where this is going. Was it a bag of devouring? No. Okay. I absolutely <laughs> should have done that. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> Considering all the fact that they once put a dessert cart in there, that would have been really good. Um... The other thing was, much earlier in that campaign, they found a book, um, which was the Book of Forbidden Names, which I used to be able to say in Latin, and now I can't. Um, sorry. Um, but when they got the book, essentially a demon prince said, hey, you should really burn that book. It's only going to lead to trouble. And so in their final fight, what they thought was going to be the incantation to cut the demons off, actually summons him. And he's like, oh. I told you it was going to lead to trouble. 
And so they fight him and discover, look, he's practically invulnerable. And then one of my player characters is like, wait a second. I look at the book and I thought, yes, 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 yes. He goes, I've got to set that on fire. And they're like, this is the... And so when they succeeded, I'm like, yeah, you know, magic overwhelms the portal shots, everything's fine, you're good, etc. They're like, this was the best! We had to set something on fire! It's like, <laughs> yes, that was the solution all along. If you'd actually listen to the devil telling you, hey, burn the book, it's evil. None of this would have... I would have had to think of something else. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, it was yeah you can give them the answer. You can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> you, you, can lead, you can lead your player characters to water, but you can only then sit in despair and watch as they set that water on fire. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> How did you people do this? <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, Sammy, one thing we I definitely wanted to ask was... Yeah. And this is something that I sent you a message. This is one of the things I really want yeah, to make sure we have a an interesting discussion on at least. I am an I'm an extremely boring cis heteronormative human being. I glory in my boringness. I am wonderfully boring. What are the best ways I can make sure that my table is a comfortable place for you to be? So okay, that's, some, that's a we really covered some of it, which question. is yeah, set out the expectations and have a discussion with each other about what's okay and what's not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely the first big one. Um, I think the next one that I would put on my list actually comes to sort of the way you play. I'd like to challenge that boring cis cis. Uh, heterosexual white guy it, it's Sammy thing. it's okay I know I'm not boring I just no no it, well, it, it's like a useful term in the me sense to of, of right but I think it does carry a certain um, amount of like I think when we talk about it in that perspective sometimes we see a default and then variations from it right no, no, I can, does that kind no, of make no, sense no, that, it does it does and, and thank you like and, and it kind of carries should, that with it and yeah. I think that that's one of the first things we can do is start to just break down assumptions in the way that um, we create worlds and the way that we talk about our own characters and the characters of other players at the table. Um, I think that that's such an important step. Um, so not just assuming that, you know, a character is straight unless otherwise stated. Um, the same, of course, goes for, like, race and other identities. Um I think I think just broadly, yeah, like I guess the tricky thing is you shouldn't have to fit in sort of people who are different at your table. It's sort of they should fit in already when they get there, right? It shouldn't be a space that accommodates around them because they're there. It should just be a space that's open different people regardless of whether those people are there i guess you know we need we'd like does that kind of make sense like we need like thinking beyond just who's there and trying to fit them in but just trying to make it a space that neutrally sort of fits a broad range of people and i think the reason for that is actually sometimes when you come into a space where you have something that's different to other people you can feel like the spotlight is on you, even if those people are well intentioned, <laughs> right? It, it can actually we, we, we be all very know, We all know um, what the road paved with good intention leads towards. <laughs> exactly. Um, look, um, and having oh, that sorry. spotlight uh, on you is very. Um, having that spotlight on you, it it really puts everything you do under focus. You can end up second guessing yourself a lot. Yeah, I think you want to. I think you just want to break. Any assumption you can break, just chuck it out. <laughs> That's fair. No, I, I, I will say I am very lucky in that every table that I've run, I've had someone who does identify as LGBTQ. And I think that's wonderful. 
But in a lot of ways, it's like, look, this person isn't... It is not the only defining factor of that human being. Of course. And I think that's wonderful. But I think there's a way... You, and, and I agree with you, like, you can put too much of a spotlight on, per, on a single part of someone's identity. Um... But I think, and a space can put that spotlight without it even being explicit. Yeah, I can imagine it's exhausting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think if the space, how to say, if the space carries the assumption that if you weren't there, then people wouldn't be including certain types of characters, or or the story wouldn't be going a certain way, or or whatever, then then that feels weird, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, that that feels very strange. I mean, obviously your presence is always going to affect what happens. Mm. Anyone's present, effect, presence will affect the game. But I mean, if you feel like the only reason people are thinking about your identity or like people like you is because you're actually physically there, well, then that says, you know... If I was slightly different, they'd be thinking about how I was slightly different and they wouldn't be thinking about how I am now, you know? It's that, it's, yeah. you just got to think broadly, I think. Yeah, I don't think that's um, pretty fair. I think the challenge is, yeah, to make, to make your table inclusive before it even needs to be. <laughs> needs to be in quotation marks. <laughs> I think that is a very beautiful way of looking at it. In, in fact, I, th- I think if we could, like... If we could take every rule of the table and just say, guys, just make your table inclusive. Sorry, I'm going to get, like, those exact words. Like, they should go on a T-shirt somewhere. Hmm. J- just make your table <laughs> inclusive so it is when it needs to be. That's yeah, lovely. exactly. Exactly. And I think you'll find... Um, I think it comes on all levels, too. I think a lot of traditional, uh, like, D&D content and settings carries a lot of assumptions and stuff with it. Um, they're not environments that fit a broad variety of people. They're, they're environments that, like we were talking about earlier, like, characters have very defined roles um, in the world. Like, a dwarf is, a, is this very specific thing, and an elf is this very specific thing. And tieflings um, or horny buggers. <laughs> sure. Um, Sorry, the, the no, first teasing no, no. I played was Salivarius, and he was—he thought he loved beauty. He thought everyone was beautiful, and he—he he would have gone after you. He would have gone after <laughs> everyone, and it's like, yeah, that's that's also because every other tiefling I've played with has been—oh, sorry, not every, almost every other tiefling <laughs> has been exactly that. Exactly, and I think. But I think that that then even makes a situation where even if the players are bl- being inclusive, uh, suddenly I make a character that's a little bit different to everyone else's character, um, and suddenly I am just this one different thing in this world that acts in a very normal D&D way with all the assumptions of d and I think even that can be a difficult experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think that just the need for inclusion just resonates really on every level of the experience at the table. And I mean, at, of just experiences, right? <laughs> I mean, we, as we've been saying um, multiple times, like you, you've, you can always just try to do better um, and there's always more better to be. I mean, I'm, I know, I'm sure I do things that don't, aren't conducive to getting along with other types of people that I'm not even aware of, right? I, I'm sure everyone does it, you know? <laughs> I, like, I'm a white person. I'm sure I do things that offend people of colour or or at least don't make the most welcoming environment or uphold some assumptions I don't realise I have, you know? Mm. And and I can only do more to, to better that, right? Yeah. I can there, only just a, work um, on it, and I can work on it even if no one makes me. <laughs> yeah. There's a book called um, You Are Not So Smart. Um, I can't remember the author's name. It's a really good book. Go read it. It's really good. 
Um, but there's actually a, web, a website called How Racist Are You? And I've never been there, um, partially because it's like, look, I know I'm not good enough. That's okay. Knowing that means I can get better. Um, but it was essentially put together by, it was a university in the States. It was one of the big ones. And it's essentially just playing on a lot of our subconscious psychology and our, um, our inbuilt tendency to stereotype. Is that one of those associative tests where like you, you see a word and then you have to. I don't know. Apparently it's more based on images. Again, like I haven't gone to check it because it's like, guys, you've, you've convinced me already that I'm not as good as I need to be. (laughs) Yeah. You don't need to convince me any further. You just need to show me how to get better. <laughs> like, where's that book? <laughs> you can be smarter. <gasps> yes, that's the one. I need that book all the time. Not as bright as I'd like to be. Um, yeah, and I think that that's a very real challenge, is that a lot of advice that you can give on these topics, I mean, I it's abstract, right? It's It's difficult to implement because I think it's abstract until it has lifetime. to be very real. <laughs> it's a whole lifetime of baggage that you can think you've addressed it on one level, but you're carrying all this other stuff and doing these other things and not even thinking about it. You know, it's so much. It's it's a lot. And I don't think anyone should ever try and say it isn't. Yeah. Uh, because it is. Um, there, there, there was that and whole, I think it's oh, just sorry, constantly being aware. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it's like movement where people were saying, hey, kindness is a free action. It's like, no, guys, it's really not. <laughs> we should never treat kindness as a kind of throwaway virtue because it's difficult. Like, being alive as a human being as a functional human being is actually really tough and we shouldn't we should not reduce the importance of just being as nice as you can whenever you can yeah like a few years ago i was studying um oh wow it's actually quite a few years ago now i am really old um i don't know how much of the gray and the white you can see in my beard now there's much more than there used to be, which is, you know, inevitable. But I want to put to you, I was working full-time, I was doing a degree in studying full-time, I was sleeping about three hours a night, and I was drinking about five or six double shots of coffee a day. I was an asshole. My colleagues and I have laughed about the fact that, you know, Josh, since you've only got one full-time occupation now and you sleep a good six or seven hours a night you're actually really nice it's like (laughs) yeah and and so i think to kind of come back it's like guys don't treat kindness as nothing because to some people it is the main reason they turn up to your table is because you were kind yeah yeah and i think and i think that that's important in another way which is i think when you treat it as something as a free action as something we can just inherently do then you feel like if you're not doing it a hundred percent already then you're just bad at it and you can never be better at it and i I think and i think i think so many things come down to taking the stress of being the best at it being perfect at it off yourself freeing yourself from the assumption that that's ever going to happen well ever but straight away and and just letting yourself do one thing at a time get better at one thing at a time um it's much more important so yeah in that way i agree kindness is at least a bonus action (laughs) (laughs) at least yeah I think we can definitely... Kindness is a Maybe even action. a ritual. Ooh. I'm not sure. Ooh. The full 10 minutes? <laughs> but it doesn't consume... Depends a, what you do. It, it doesn't consume a spell slot, so that's okay. But that's just so fighters can do it. Yeah. Actually, that's not how that works. I know. Oh, well, it depends. If you actually take the um, the magic adept Ritual feat, caster. Oh, yeah you, yeah, you could go with ritual caster, yeah. Hmm. <sighs> 
I didn't think this was going to become that kind of discussion. <laughs> I don't have my I don't have my dungeon master's guide in front of me. All my players' handbook. Neither do I. Knock it off. Stop it. It's okay. That's what improv is for. We'll make up the rules. <laughs> That's a lie. That's it. not what you do in an improv game. Yeah, I... <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have said that at the start. <laughs> it's a lie. We don't make up rules. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I just like that on record. There are rules, and we do have to follow them in Dungeon World. Excellent. Um, on that note, I I thought we were going to call it about there. Mm-hmm. This was one of those rare ones where on Twitter no one asked me at all, and I thought, but this is important. Yeah, I saw it, and it had a high retweets. Yeah, but I think it may have been high retweets no from comments. like you know bots that just retweet stuff. So I don't know if that's right. actual like proper engagement, but you know maybe maybe not. I don't know. Anyways, um, Sammy, if people would like to start listening to your podcast and engaging with you, how can they do that? What's the best way? So our podcast once again is called Queer Dungeoneers. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we are on Twitter at Queer Dungeons. So no ear on the end of that one. It wouldn't fit. So just Queer Dungeons. Um, I'm Sammy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sammy Matafilio. Um, S-A-M-M-Y-M-A-D-A-F-I-G-L-I-O. So, you know, if you if you got all that, you can find me. Um, otherwise, I think there's a link on the Queer Dungeoneers Twitter. It's fine. You'll work it out. Um, I'm never too far away. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a Patreon, uh, which you might consider supporting if you like the show. And that's about it. Excellent. Um, I, of course, can be found at nerdypeopled.com. Um, there is a website, um, betterhomesanddungeons.net, which is currently under construction um, and is going to have a very silly logo at some point. It's going to be great because I'm a very silly person, as I think most people picked <laughs> up. Cool. Um, but, Sammy, thank you again very, very much for your time. I'd love to have you back at thank some point. Thank you for having me. Where we can just you know, sit, shoot the breeze about being dungeon masters. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Cheers. Awesome. Okay. Bye. When we started this journey, I was just a dropout from the College of Arcanists. Some girl who could turn into animals. A pickpocket looking for answers. I was a swan. But along the way, I found hope. Love. Family. I found out I can turn into a giant worm. Okay, look, Signana, I... He's right. But it's really not fitting in with the tone of what we're going for here. I mean, we're all talking about the esoteric... Queer Dungeoneers, an actual play podcast about being who you are by being someone different. I can turn into a worm. Oh, forget it. (laughs) 